0: Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a pair of social workers explain how routines and activity and connection can help us get through the pandemic.
1: You know, we're physically distancing from people, we're social distancing, but we can FaceTime, we could call. It's important to still stay connected to people
2: even remotely.
0: A bioethicist provides an academic overview of the ways to allocate scarce medical resources.
2: It's important to have a system where you can, in an agreed upon way, decide who gets the limited resource in a way that's fair to
0: everybody. And we'll talk about eating well when you're staying home with a registered dietitian nutritionist and a fourth year medical student. All that along with a selection from The Healing News coming up after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, on a special coronavirus themed episode, we'll get an academic overview of the methods of allocating scarce medical resources from an upstate bioethicist. Then we'll hear how to eat well when you're staying home with advice from an upstate registered dietitian, nutritionist, and a fourth year medical student. But first, a pair of social workers talk about their role in supporting those who are working through the pandemic. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. These are stressful times for everyone, but maybe especially for people who work in healthcare. I'm talking by phone with two social workers from upstate, Sarah Obrist and Tamika Hudson. Thank you both for making time for HealthLink on Air today. Of course. No problem. Let's talk about what your role is as social workers during this pandemic.
3: My job is to provide emotional and physical support to the staff that's physically located within the building um, and to provide any necessary support that's needed for the patients that come in through the ED at this time.
0: So you're physically present in the hospital? Yes, ma'am. Okay. And you're helping not just um, patients, as you do but normally, colleagues but as well. colleagues as well. Okay. Yes. So what are some of the issues that are coming up among the healthcare workers?
3: I think it's what is being felt overall throughout the nation. You know, people are concerned about getting sick. People are concerned about getting their loved ones sick. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of people with the social isolation are concerned because they can't see their family members. They can't see their grandkids. They can't see um, their parents. So really just helping people process this um, isolation and how to have a little optimism to get them through this time until we're in a better place.
0: So it sounds Mm -hmm. like they're dealing with a lot of the issues all of us are dealing with. And on top of that, then they're working, too. Correct. And with the fear um, of exposure.
3: Correct. I, I think here currently we don't have, we're not running out of PPE, but we're using it sparingly. We're not using it um, haphazardly. So those of us who need to use it are using it, and those of us who are not to be in the rooms are not going into rooms. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to make the best of what we have.
0: Okay. What are you able to say um or suggest to people to help them? I think, um, it's
3: important to take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, (laughs) we talk about the normal journaling, listening to music, meditating. No one wants to be stuck in a house. Um, you know, go out for a brief walk, uh, not in groups, but, you know, go out and get some fresh air. Uh, we're talking about how to manage stress. um, In different ways to do that. And I think Mm -hmm. Sarah had some other points that she wanted to talk about as well.
1: Yeah, I agree with Tanika. You know, trying to keep a routine, um, trying to keep a schedule. It's difficult if you're isolating or even if you're still working, trying to make a new routine for yourself. So obviously things are closed. You have to change your routine a little bit. So like Tanika said, you can still go out. You can take a walk if it's nice out. It's important to still stay connected to people. You know, we're physically distancing from people. We're social distancing, but we can FaceTime. We could call, um, video chat. We can go for walks and be far apart from each other, but still see each other. It's important to still stay connected to people, even remotely, and to stay active, you know, being creative with how you're being active. Um, And, you know, also just limiting your news, what you're watching, Watching mm-hmm. it so much and limiting maybe your social media, um, and just taking care of each other and being there for each other during
0: this. It's important. Yeah, you mentioned you know staying connected. Telephone, the telephone still works, right? And right. Um, just doing some things, maybe we would call them, you know, things that we did in previous years before we had social media. Correct. Now let's talk about why is routine important.
1: I think routine's important because it gives you a sense of normalcy. It gives you a sense, you know, of purpose. You're getting up and you're doing something you want to accomplish and you're sticking to a schedule. So whether that's work or if you're home, you know, doing, getting, like Seneca like said, into a hobby, maybe you've been neglecting or getting into a project you haven't been um, attending to. Sticking to things that will help you feel like you're having a purpose, getting through the day.
3: And helping you feel successful each day. And I think routines help us manage our emotional and mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, like Sarah talked about, the exercise, the connection. Um, and now we're learning new routines, but we need to, you know, build routines about, around the things that we normally do: uh, the movement, our cooking, um, connections, and just enjoying like some smaller joys that we have in life.
0: Well, children, of course, their routine has been to go to school. And without that, you're talking about new routines at home, perhaps, right?
3: We're talking about providing structure. Okay. Right. Which is
0: always
3: important,
0: too. <laughs> you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with two social workers from Upstate. We have Sarah Obrist and Tamika Hudson, both by telephone. So I wanted to ask each of you, um, how would you advise someone who comes in and says to you, I'm having trouble sleeping, or I'm having wild nightmares every night, ever since this has started? What could you um, advise that person?
1: Um, I would advise, so it's difficult, but in these situations, there's a lot of things that seem out of our control, but there are many things that are still in our control, so Focusing on the things that we can control. What in this moment am I able to do for myself? What can I change for myself? And how can I make myself feel better right now? It feels, I think, in this climate that there's a lot of things going on that we can't control. When if we slow down and focus on ourselves, and even in everyday life, what can I do for myself? Break it down smaller pieces and not trying to think too far ahead. I think that can really help someone to kind of ground yourself, come back to the moment, and think about
3: right now, right here, how can I help myself in this moment? And i use the acronym STOP. Ask, STOP. Stop what you're doing right now. Get comfortable. Take a few deep breaths. Mm-hmm. observe. Figure out what's going on with your body. Because um, we need to be aware of, of our experiences in that moment, what we're feeling physically, emotionally, and mentally. Uh, the moment that we notice our mind is off is the moment that we're really present. We need to settle in and be aware of what we're feeling, and then proceed. What's more important for me to pay attention to right now? What am I needing to do? And I think if we take that pause, that we can do great stuff here.
0: That's mm-hmm. a neat. That's a neat acronym. Stop, stop, and get comfortable. T, take deep breaths. O, observe what's going on with your body. And P, proceed. Yes. So if you're, you've got the TV on and all of this troubling news is coming out um, and that's making you anxious, um, maybe you can't control anything that they're talking about. You can't do anything about, you know, this pandemic really. But you can turn off the TV and right. you can... Take a bath, put uh, lo- put lotion on your body. I mean, you can do th- things like that, right, just to kind of soothe yourself? Literally,
3: we just want to be in the moment. Exactly. Like, what am I feeling right now? Okay, mm-hmm. my chest hurts. I'm feeling anxious. Okay, let's take a deep breath, mm-hmm. you know, and do that for maybe 10 seconds. And then we need to be aware that we're feeling that. And then at some point, once we're more comfortable, to move forward, whether it's preparing our meals or doing our laundry, or caring for our families and loved
1: ones. Mm -hmm. Taking it one step at a time and reminding yourself that you're okay in this moment and you'll work towards being okay in the future. And right now you're okay to ground yourself in this moment.
0: So this is some good advice for people. Uh, I wanted to ask each of you if you can tell me what your individual secret is to getting through the day when it feels like the world is upside down because you are the healthcare workers coming in. You're part of that contingent coming into work and still having all of this other stuff to deal with. What do you have as a secret coping net mechanism? I use an app,
3: app called Y O U P E R. And literally, I check in with it every day. It asks me, How are you feeling? What's making you feel this way? Um, mm-hmm. Would you like to meditate? Would you like to take some quiet time? Um, and what my choices are after that, then I either go further into it or I say I'm done for the day and then at night I check in again and literally it says you know do you need help um would you like to process it so literally I use the app on my phone and it just guides me and, and that's during, it sounds like day, a, if I need a breather it I took three minutes to meditate.
0: it sounds like a good touch point for you too a way to start your day and end your day
3: correct mm-hmm
1: <laughs> Yeah. yeah, for me, I like to listen to music a lot. I'm always listening to music, and I also like to stay connected to my loved ones. So I'm always reaching out to my sister and my mom, my, mom or my brother and my dad, and just making sure, you know, I check in with them to see how I'm doing and checking in with myself, too.
0: Well, that's very good advice. I thank both of you. Thank you to social workers Sarah Obrist and Tamika Hudson. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast. And talk show HealthLink on Air. Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, how do you ethically decide who gets a ventilator? From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. When medical resources become scarce, as may happen during pandemics, what are the ethical considerations for deciding who gets care? For an academic look at this dilemma, I'm speaking by telephone with Dr. Thomas Curran. He's part of the Bioethics and Humanities faculty at Upstate, and he teaches about this very subject. Thank you for making time to talk with me, Dr. Curran.
2: My pleasure, Amber.
0: Now, under normal conditions, we strive to treat people equally, um, but that sometimes changes during emergency conditions. Right?
2: That, that's that's precisely it. Our entire system uh, is based on, you know, maximizing the care of individual patients uh, the best way uh, that we can. And in a in a pandemic situation, all of a sudden, you know, you have to shift from pa- patient centered practice. To patient care that's really guided by public health considerations, uh, and this, you know, can create great tension uh, in the clinicians who are unac- they're, they're just unaccustomed um, to working under viral pandemic conditions, and they're unused to, you know, putting society out out in front. It's a it's a whole different way of thinking, and you know, we're trying to in, in, a, in a pandemic situation you're trying to ensure the health of the population. Uh, And to do that, it can require limitations on uh, individual rights and preferences. That's it's just it's a it's a different situation.
0: So that's different for patients too, because we're we're used to getting kind of what we want when we want it, and that's not going to happen in a pandemic, right?
2: Uh, It is absolutely not going to happen. As I said, you you know, there's look, uh, um, individual liberty is one of the uh, most prominent traits of uh, Americans we, we we absolutely honor our individual liberty however in a viral pandemic there are there's this limitations of individual rights that's this it's baked into the pie
0: so let's talk because in this pandemic uh, the coronavirus causes uh, a respiratory illness so ventilators are in short supply and why is it that they're Needed so much right now, we don't really have enough of them.
2: Yeah, a, a, a very good point. So, as you everyone's heard about trying to flatten the curve, right? So, and when people talk about flattening the curve of COVID 19 transmission, what they're talking about is making the transmission slow down enough that we don't exceed the capacity of hospitals to take care of people. So the ventilator comes into play when we don't bend the curve enough and we exceed the hospital's capacity to take care of patients with COVID-19. And based on the numbers, I just read this yesterday, based on the numbers in New York from yesterday, they're estimating that um, we're going there'll be between 1.4 and 31 patients per ventilator to be needed, depending on how many people get COVID-19. So you can see if, if 1.4 people need one ventilator or 31 people need one ventilator, it's still not enough ventilators. And so the, the, you know, whether or not you get on a ventilator is typically, you know, a matter of life and death.
0: Well, the Los Angeles Times began a story recently with a question I'd like to put to you. Here it is. Three patients, a 16-year-old boy with diabetes, a 25-year-old mother, and a 75-year-old grandfather are crammed into a hospital triage tent and struggling to breathe. Only one ventilator is left. Who gets it? So you, as a bioethicist, how do you answer that question? What are some of the things you consider in answering that question?
2: So, um, as you may imagine, Amber, there are, there are New York State guidelines for this. Oh. Okay. And they, they, they were last revised in 2015. So they, they, you know, they, definitely took, they were definitely crafted after SARS and MERS and H1N1 and, all, you know, all those things. So they took, they took, they took into consideration, uh, you know, virally transmitted respiratory diseases. And so they've come up with, um, you know, New York State's guiding principle is they're targeting saving the most lives as possible uh, from the in, – and in, in, in particular – the fact that they will survive short term with this acute medical episode. So that's that's a really important thing to keep in mind because you, you can imagine um, uh, people are going to be presenting, if we if we exceed surge capacity, people will be, will be presenting with respiratory failure faster than we can put them on breathing machines, which means that some people will not get on breathing machines, which means that some people will die. So New York State has has... Um, they their, their main concern is that maximizing short-term survival and being objective, as you may imagine, because um, anytime you start uh, limiting a therapy, you better make sure that you've taken into account most of your uh, um, unconscious biases, because everyone, you know, I might say, gee, you know. Uh, a, a 60-year-old physician should definitely be in the list because they can take care of people, but that, that would be self-serving on my part. So oh. the, way State, the, the way New York State does it is they, um, they, they do it in three steps. The first thing, when you, when you arrive at the hospital and you're in respiratory distress and you need a, a ventilator, the first thing they do is they decide whether or not you meet exclusion criteria, which means if you're in irreversible shock, you're not going to get a ventilator because you're likely going to die anyway. So that's the first level of assessment. The second level of assessment, and this is really um, where New York State is trying to figure out your overall morto- mortality risk. You're gonna hear a lot about something called sequential, sequential organ failure assessment, or SOFA. Sequential organ failure assessment. And the, a patient that, a, that turns up in the hospital, they're gonna check the oxygen level. they're gonna check you, you know, your, your platelet count, they're gonna check your uh, bilirubin, they're gonna check your blood pressure. They're going to check all these things, and they're going to give you a score. And low scores get the ventilators, and high scores don't. Uh, so those then, scores
0: are, are telling you uh, how healthy your organs are.
2: It, it's exactly correct. You, you with a, a doing a, a several like sort for example Billy Rubin. Uh, could assess your liver function, and creatinine can uh, assess your kidneys' function, and the, your oxygen level can re- is reflective of your lungs' function. And so the worse you're, the, the more, um, the sicker you are, the higher score you get, and the less likely you are to get a ventilator. Once again, this is fundamentally different from how we operate in a non-pandemic situation because we have enough ventilators in a non-pandemic situation. So even if you presented with all those things you know, uh, two months ago, you would definitely get a ventilator because we didn't have any of these sort of over, you know, um, didn't have these limitations based on availability of ventilators. And then, and then lastly, Amber, then you get reassessed um, every couple of days to see if you looking for signs of improvement. And if you don't improve, then they'll put someone else on the ventilator who has a better chance of short-term survival. So this is a you can see where this will generate. Uh, has potential to de- to generate an enormous amount of moral distress, uh, both with patients and and the medical team. This is really uncharted waters.
0: You're listening to Upstate's Health Link on air. I'm your host Amber Smith, talking with bioethicist Dr. Thomas Curran. And I just learned that New York State has guidelines uh, from 2015 that were put in place that will help healthcare workers decide who gets the scarce medical resources. During a pandemic, so I didn't hear you mention age. Is age something that goes? I mean, certainly age, uh, you know, influences the health of your organs. But as a specific, does a 75-year-old stand less of a chance of getting a ventilator than a 65-year-old? All of other things being equal.
2: Well, well. Although I've so far avoided answering your LA Times question, I will delve in at this juncture based on New York State. So. In New York State, if you're a 75-year-old male, or you're a 16-year-old male, and you have the same SOFA score, in New York State, they prioritize being less than 17 years of age to get the ventilator over the older person. That's the it's the one thing it's the one thing in the New York State regulations right now that there's a preference based on age. I can and I remember t- talking with my uh, my mom about this, <laughs> she, thought, she, did not like, she did not like how that one broke down at all, uh, as you may imagine. But the New York, as of 2015, that's how New York State has directed uh, clinicians to uh, operate, A. B, there is talk uh, that there will be another set of recommendations forthcoming shortly based on our current uh, situation.
0: So with respect to age, what about with respect to other medical problems, all other things being equal, if one person has a cancer diagnosis and the other one doesn't, who gets the machine?
2: That's a great question. And the way the way the current regulations are written, uh, if you have so if you have a person with respiratory failure, straight COVID nineteen, and you have another patient with straight with um COVID nineteen respiratory failure, but in addition to that, they have cancer. If the two of them have the same score, same SOFA score or assigned to the same group via the sofa assessment tool, then it's a it's a flip of a coin who gets the vent. They want they want New York State has recognized uh, recommended randomizing people to whether or not they get a vent because they think, I mean, you can make a case for this. It is um, fair in so far as it's random chance. Now, one could easily make the case that why would you, you know, why would the, why would you not consider a comorbid um, diagnosis such as cancer? The problem is it just introduces too much subjectivity into decisions that that need to be made literally, you know, minute to minute.
0: What is in place to make sure that some wealthy person can't just jump to the front of the line?
2: So um, it's an interesting question. So there's a lot of talk right now about um, separating the clinicians who are taking care of the patients hands-on and the triage folks who determine whether or not you qualify for a ventilator. there's a lot of talk about separating those two groups because it's felt that the clinician the hands-on clinician has an, un, an unconscious bias to help the patient they're taking care of, no matter what they can do. And that kind of messes up the, 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 the New York State guidelines, uh, you know SOFA scores. And so um, I, the, the, the thought is that um, if you, if, as long as you keep it totally objective, then it will be very hard for, as you said, for someone to jump the line. And it's also thought to be if you have a different set of folks evaluating patients for potential uh, ventilator use, um, there's good to be some separation between them and the clinicians, and that also would help with you know uh, stopping people from jumping the line, as you said.
0: So, what if you're a person um, who's not going to get the ventilator? Are you automatically a do not resuscitate patient?
2: So, this is going to be, this is going to be a big, big topic, and, and uh, I'll just unpack it for you. So, if if you're in respiratory failure, and you do not get a vent, and you do not get put on a ventilator, you are almost always going to be dead in a very short period of time. I mean, that's why we use ventilators, right? They prevent death from respiratory failure. Now, if you don't get the ventilator and you have COVID-19, your heart will stop at some point after you didn't get the ventilator. And then the question is, do you try and restart that heart at that point or not? And one of the things that you have to keep in mind under pandemic situations is, you know, when you code someone, you push on their chest and you put lines in them. And all, the, the potential for transmission of COVID-19 exists by the very act of coding someone. And so that's where there's this, this where do we go with regards to our duty to safeguard the healthcare workforce? Because just that, that would put example, them,
0: that would put a uh, doctor and nurse and technicians at risk if they're trying everyone to. Everyone
2: at risk. A, B, you know, one of the things we're trying to do here is maintain critical mass of health care providers. If if all the health care providers get COVID-19, you know, that's the apocalypse. And so, once again, this, this whether or not you get made DNR or not, this is one of those classic examples of non-pandemic times, individual liberty drives the bus, and in pandemic, viral pandemic time, you have to take a look at the greater good. And to be, you know, so if you want to be pragmatic about it, what good would it do to code someone who is not going to make it anyway, and in particular, with the risk of transmitting COVID-19 to the healthcare team? You know, it's hard to make a case to code someone in most situations. But that being said, it's going to generate a ton of discussion because it's so different from what we would usually do.
0: Yeah, I imagine there's a lot of discussions going on regarding this. So can we go back to the Los Angeles Times story? Which patient gets the ventilator, the 16-year-old boy with diabetes, the 25-year-old mother, or the 75-year-old grandfather? Assuming they all have the same SOFA score. Sofa. Yeah. yeah, If so- they all have
2: the same SOFA score and there's one ventilator, the 16-year-old would get
4: it.
0: In, in, New, New, York, in York State, New York State. As it okay. stands
2: right now, as, a 20, as per the 2015 guidelines. Yes. Even over the 25-year-old mother.
0: So they don't look at um, who has the most dependence or who has the most life left to the lifespan. They don't consider that, really.
2: Well, the lifespan is, is the one thing that is considered. That's why there's a bias for same score bent going to the younger person.
0: Un- under 17?
2: Under 17. Okay. And once again, this could very well change when the, with this, if new guidelines um, come out. I think the thing that's, that, that most people don't, are, are, it's hard for them to get their head around is that if if our if we exceed the surge capacity of our intensive care beds um, these decisions are going to be being made fast and they're going to be permanent and they're going to be continuous you know it's going to be it's going to be frenetic and so um, uh, you have to have a it's, it's important to have a system where you can, in an agreed-upon way, decide who gets the limited resource in a way that's fair to everybody.
0: Because it's made patient, at the patient's bedside, it, there's not going to be some meeting called with a lot of people sitting down to talk about it. It has to be made immediately.
2: Right. And and, and I when I envision this, there's going to be, I envision a place that's not in the not in the emergency room or the ICU, some office someplace in the upstate. And there's going to be people, three or four people in that room, that are just looking at patient profiles and who's getting better and who's getting worse and who gets the vents and who comes off the vents. There's going to be an, like an independent, I, I, at least I envision this, an in, independent group of people making those determinations separate from the clinical environment. But they're going to have to be made very fast, and they're going to be irreversible.
0: Wow. Well, this has been very enlightening. Thank you to Dr. Thomas Curran. He's part of the Bioethics and Humanities faculty at Upstate Medical University. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air. <music> Eating well when you're staying in. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. In Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. We're all under a lot of stress, and it's tempting to soothe ourselves with nothing but comfort food, but that may backfire. Julie Mellon is with me by phone. She's a registered dietitian, nutritionist, and a certified diabetes educator at Upstate. Thank you for being here, Julie.
5: Thanks for having me.
0: So, is that true? Um, I'm not the only one that's craving comfort food at this point?
5: Uh, I think, you know, with stress and worry and uh it's definitely going to be a craving for comfort foods.
0: now they call them comfort foods for a reason right you eat macaroni and cheese it may you feel better while you're eating it right
5: (laughs) i think probably everybody's different with whatever comfort food they have but um yes macaroni and cheese is probably a popular one um so i think you know this this is such a trying time this is unprecedented so really focusing on doing the best you can with trying to keep healthy. And you have kids maybe that haven't been home, so you have to feed more mouths. So um, I think it's important to try to focus on getting that nutrition in there and um, trying to be a lot more flexible in, in your, I guess, your eating.
0: What sorts of foods do you recommend um, during times of stress? Are there certain things that we should Maybe make an extra effort to get into our diet.
5: So I think really just focusing on just a well-balanced diet. Um, a big supporter of the Mediterranean style eating, and trying to get you know your fruit and vegetables, your whole grains, some good lean protein in there, um, and trying to eat regularly. Trying to you know have your you know whatever your pattern is, but three meals, some healthy snacks. Now, there's gonna be a lot of downtime now, it's you know, for a lot of kids and a lot of people. So getting outside a little bit, maybe trying to get some fresh air, getting some exercise, probably the best thing for stress management, even if it's just a walk, just to practice like deep breathing, mindfulness, those things I think are gonna come into play a lot more um, as we're cooped up more.
0: Are there uh, particular foods that you think would be good snacks for kids or, or teens, bearing in mind that our trips to the grocery store are necessarily limited?
5: Only, yes, they're limited, and what you can get is limited. So I think, I mean, I've been to the grocery stores. People are kind of buying what they can. They're trying to be resourceful. They're buying maybe trying to stock up. But for kids, um yeah, they're home more, and they're hearing a lot of this stuff, and I'm sure it's stressful for everybody, um, but trying to focus on, again, a lot of those just you know, trying to keep the snacks part of a food group, like whole grain cereal, uh, maybe some yogurt, whole wheat bread and peanut butter, cheese and crackers, those types of things can be um, a little bit more healthy. They're at least covering a couple of different food groups. I try to like to have snacks, at least two food groups represented for snacks, maybe three for meals, so, you know, meat, vegetable, grain, something like that, but trying to focus on that type of stuff. Um,
0: and those sound like items that not only kids and teens but adults and seniors could eat well as well.
5: Right, and, you know, the times with storage and having foods that are available and in pantry items, maybe people will be using a little bit more of those than then, you know, trying to find fresh meat at the grocery store was really difficult over the past week. So relying on um, your legumes for protein or eggs for protein.
0: So eggs, if people have fresh eggs, um, legumes, uh, cans of beans tend to be in everyone's pantry, right?
5: Yeah, absolutely. Canned soups I mean, there's lentil soup, black bean soup, you know, and those types of things. And you can fortify those too. You know, if you have canned vegetables or frozen vegetables in your freezer and you want to open up a can of soup and make that more healthful by adding in, adding in maybe some fresh vegetables or if you had leftover chicken somewhere and you put that into your soup. You can kind of take those things that you have maybe in your pantry and expand that and make them more healthful and more, more satisfying too, more filling if you're running low on food.
0: Now, I've always heard that when you eat, you should try to have um, carb, protein, and fat with every meal. So can you just sort of get creative with what you have as long as you've got some protein, carb, and fat?
5: Right. So that's where you get your calories from, your carbohydrate, your protein, your fat. Um, So, you know, your different food groups are are usually a combination of those. So, for example, your... um, so if you're planning a meal, you want to kind of think of those things. So if you wanted to carbohydrate like a, a whole, whole wheat pasta or, or just plain pasta and you want to get a protein in there, it doesn't have to be meat. It could be an egg or beans, um, and then vegetables, obviously lots of varieties there.
0: Uh, I know everyone has their favorites, but this is a time where – you know, you might not have whatever someone likes to eat, and you kind of have to make do with what you've got. Are there? Do you have any advice for making something more palatable if if you're not really excited to eat it?
5: <laughs> Maybe some spices, sweetening it up a little bit. Um, it's tough, you know. You don't want to eat things that you don't like, but then you know, depending on how 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 much resources you have. Um, Gonna have to make do a little bit, and like I said, I think probably being flexible and and trying that to encourage the kids, especially, to be a little bit flexible and realize that there might not be the things that they're used to having, um, or they're going quicker. So I have a lot of mouths to feed, so in my house, you know, the pantry was stocked, and now there's nothing to eat. They're all complaining that there's nothing to eat, so
4: it's tough.
0: Well, during times of stress, uh, do you s- hear about more people eat overeating or undereating? Are there people that just are so nervous they can't eat?
5: I think there's. I think you're going to see both. Um, you know, people will eat when they're bored or when they're stressed, and for n- and many other emotional reasons. And then some people get so stressed that they just don't eat. Um, so I think you know, trying to you know, there's a whole mindful. Eating, where you try to want to, you know, if your emotions are causing you to either overeat or undereat, trying to kind of pay attention to that, maybe recognize that that is happening. And um, if you're overeating, obviously that's going to run into or health complications if you're going to gain weight and not and not being able to get to a gym or do the exercise that maybe you're used to. So trying to be a little bit more mindful, eating when you're hungry, enjoying the food that you have as best you can, um, enjoying the sight and smell of the food.
0: So let me ask you, grocery shopping these days is a little dicey. When you get there, they may not have what you're looking for, but let me just uh, have you do this imagination. You go into the grocery store what should I be looking for, and what should I grab if I see?
5: So uh, I was in the grocery store several times and did that whole perimeter of the store, and I was focusing on um, some produce, and and I walked the perimeter, which is where you're going to find a lot of the stuff that's missing, so all the fresh meats and chicken I was looking for that. Um, when I was seeing that that wasn't there, my mind was racing, okay, I have all my kids home. How am I going to make sure that we can come up with some meals that they will eat? Pasta, rice, and then I went down to, like, look for tuna and canned goods, soup, beans, things like that. So freezer, frozen food. I was surprised the produce was readily accessible. Um just it was really a lot of that fresh stuff, and then when I got to the pasta aisle, there wasn't very much left. So we kind of look at other grains. Was there quinoa? Was there? So we have to experiment with some things that maybe we're not used to eating, just to um, just to eat. Obviously.
0: Because that's what's it. available. You mentioned tuna; I hadn't even thought about that. But yes, of course.
5: Yeah, that's tuna, the and canned, canned, they have canned salmon. There's so many options. So. Yeah, it's not the, the norm for what, you know, my family might be used to eating, but you have to make a new norm, I guess, when you're pushed against the wall to do
0: so. Is there anything to sort of just avoid? I mean, we started out talking about comfort food, and it would be tempting to grab, I don't know, the Twinkies or the chips or whatever. But, I mean, are those things that really at this time don't bring them in your house because you're just going to eat them? I don't think that that's
5: necessary ever. I mean, nothing, I don't think anything's off-limits Um there's always room for the Twinkie or whatever ice cream or whatever it is that you want but um, you know I always say get those good foods in there first as best you can and um, don't overdo the other stuff but I think just you know I think it's important to still try to maintain some kind of physical activity um, because you're right we're going to be more sedentary because just our day to day activities are not the same you know just getting up and going to school or going to work and those things burn calories, and now if you're sleeping in and staying up late and not, you know what I mean, it's going to be, I think, a bigger challenge um, to stay healthy with that in
0: place. Thank you to Julianne Mellon. She's a registered dietitian nutritionist at Upstate. And now I'll turn to Natalie Antosh. She's a fourth-year medical student at Upstate, and earlier this year, she spoke to HealthLink on air about a new nutrition elective that she's been working on and got added to the medical school curriculum here. She agreed to return to HealthLink on air, and she's going to walk us through a few simple recipes you can put together if you're staying in. Thank you for being here, Natalie. Thank you for having me. So we heard from Registered Dietitian Nutritionist Julianne Mellon about making a new norm and how you might end up needing to eat foods that you're not that familiar with because that's all that's readily available. So I wanted to have you... Uh, give us some meal ideas what have you come up with
4: yeah for sure so i came up with three different recipes um so what i'm going to talk about today um is trying to use ingredients uh, of things that um people will have like readily available in their pantry um so i'm gonna talk about a pasta recipe um a chili recipe and a lentil soup Perfect. um yeah so i can start off by talking about the pasta recipe Um, This one is probably the most simple of the three, but they're all pretty simple. Um, So for the pasta recipe, basically, um, if you are able to find it in the store, I know that sometimes pasta has been um, heavily picked over, but you you want to try to focus on your whole grains as much as possible. So if you're able to find whole wheat pasta, that's even better. And you're going to follow the instructions on the, the packaging and how to cook that. So you're going to need a pot. Now, um, okay. let me let me, water. let me
0: interrupt for oh, sorry, one minute. There's so many different pastas out there. Does it matter if I get like a spaghetti or an elbow or a... Is there one that works better or worse?
4: No, whatever texture or size you like best. Okay. Um, I usually go with the angel hair just because it cooks really quickly. And so if you're, um, you know, on a time restraint because you're working from home and things like that, um, that's usually the quickest to cook. It usually takes like
0: three minutes or something like that. Okay, good.
4: Yeah. um, So if you follow the instructions on the packaging and how to cook the pasta, you can do that in one pot. And um, you can add a little bit of salt to that as well um, to help flavor the pasta while it's cooking. Um, And so while that's cooking on the side, um, so I'm a vegetarian, so I'll go, go ahead and give one example for what vegetarians could do and then another example for what meat eaters could do okay so if you're a vegetarian um there's something called tempeh which is a fermented soy product um and it has a it can stay in the fridge for several months before the expiration date um what i like to do is i take a um thing of tempeh and i crumble it up um and then i saute it in a pan with you know some pepper. um, And if you have like paprika or cayenne pepper, something like that, you can sprinkle that on top as well. And then saute that with some olive oil um, for a few minutes until you see that it starts turning like a golden brown color. Um, And then after that, you can just add some pasta sauce to it, let that simmer. Um, Or if you don't have the tempeh, uh, but you have access to some red lentils, you could also simmer the red lentils and some pasta sauce to add some protein as well. Uh, for meat eaters, if you have, like, some frozen ground turkey, um, you could defrost that and, um, and saute that with some olive oil and seasoning, like pepper and paprika or cayenne pepper. Um, try to use the ground turkey, though, as opposed to ground beef if you have access to it, just because um, you want to use that lean protein. It's a lot healthier for you. Um, but whatever you have access to is good as well during this time. Um, and then if you have access to, like, fresh or frozen vegetables, um, I like to add like broccoli, mushrooms, spinach, zucchini, something like that. And those are also really good frozen, too. Um, and you can saute that as well once the meat or the tempeh is done cooking. Um, and then you just add the sauce and mix it together with the pasta. It's pretty easy.
0: All righty. And chili is kind of similar to that but without the pasta, right? Yeah. So that's going to be the next one I'll talk about.
4: Um, so in order to make, like, four to six servings of chili, you're going to need a large pot, um, and one onion, some garlic, um, and then if you have access to fresh or frozen vegetables, uh, that would be great. Um, some vegetables that I like to include are bell peppers, carrots, celery, corn, zucchini, or mushrooms. So if you have any of those or any other vegetables. Um, and then, again, you could do the same thing if you're a vegetarian. You can crumble some tempeh, um, or if you're a meat eater, ground turkeys you know, can be an addition. But the beans also have a lot of protein. Um, so you could just saute all of those things beforehand, before adding the beans. Um, and you'll just chop them up, um, put them in the, the pot with some olive oil and some salt and pepper. Um, and then... Once those are done being sauteed, you can add uh, a can of pinto beans and two cans of black beans or whatever combination of beans you have. But in order to make four to six servings, around three cans of beans um, and then a large can of diced tomatoes, like a 28-ounce can or two smaller cans. Um, And you'll use the juice from the diced tomatoes as well. Um, So then you can add those all together in the pot. So it's just a one-pot kind of recipe. Um, Then add like two cups of either vegetable or chicken broth or whatever you have or water if you don't have it. Um, And then, you know, spice it however you can, um, depending what spices you have in the cabinet. I like either salt, pepper, chili powder, cumin, paprika, oregano. If you have taco seasoning, that's usually a combination of those uh, spices. You could use that as well. And then if you have some type of like lemon juice or a little bit of vinegar to add some acidity, that would definitely like bring it all together.
0: And the lentil soup?
4: So in order to make enough for four servings, you just need um, an onion and some garlic. You can sauté that up uh, into some olive oil and then just add whatever vegetables you have. It can just be like fridge-clearing soup, either fresh or frozen veggies. And then you're just going to add a cup of um, brown or green lentils and boil that with the veggies and like four cups of broth or water. Um, and then if you have some diced tomatoes, you can add that as well, like one or two cans of tomatoes. And then spice it however you're able to. Um, I like cumin, curry powder, salt and pepper. And then if you have some type of grain like barley or quinoa or rice, you can cook that according to the package instructions and put the soup over it. It's really good.
0: If you want to extend it, can you add water to just make so that you have more of it?
4: Sure, yeah. You could add some more water or broth. Um, You can also add some more lentils as well if you want to. Um, increase like the protein and increase the number of servings for
0: sure well thank you so much to fourth year medical student natalie antosh and also to upstate registered dietitian nutritionist julie mellon i'm amber smith for upstate's podcast and talk show health link on air And now, Deirdre Nealon, Editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection.
6: Julianne Joachim from New York City sent us a short story that reminds us how we are all connected and how recognizing that connection can lead to kindness and comfort. I will read just an excerpt from her story called Beautiful Hands, Beautiful Feet, which captures a moment between two strangers. The narrator is working at a nail salon. As a new client approaches her station, she is told by her co-worker that the client recently lost her daughter to kidney disease, even after she had given her daughter one of her kidneys. I am wishing that I did not know what I know about her, this private cavernous thing. I get to work, bathe her feet, clean up her nails, clip and file them. She doesn't read anything or chat or close her eyes. She just sits, gripping the arms of the chair, staring straight ahead. I think, what is in her mind right now? Her daughter, I guess. Not that you can tell from her fixed face. You can't tell from her feet, either. They don't look like feet in mourning. I think, does she miss her kidney? Then, no, she's probably glad it is with her daughter, even dead. Then, if she bears what is unbearable, does that mean it is bearable? I dab exfoliant on her feet and shins and begin to scrub. It occurs to me that I have never been this physically close to grief before. Then it occurs to me that I probably have. She is missing a kidney and missing a daughter and there's no sign. Then I think, how many times have I laid nail polish over pain without knowing it? Inside, how many people in this room is pain flickering right now? Where is the end of it? I turn the timer to start the 10 minute massage that all pedicure clients get. Finally, the lady's eyes close and her grip on the chair loosens. Katie looks over and smiles at me. The lady's eyelashes flutter a little during the massage. She looks like a child dreaming. When the timer starts clicking to let you know there's one minute left, Katie looks me a question and I nod. Melanie, the owner, is far away by the door. Swiftly, Katie sets the timer between us back to 10. That is how we give the lady an extra 10 minutes for free.
0: been upstate's health link on air brought to you each week by upstate medical university in syracuse new york if you missed any of today's show or to hear health podcasts on various topics visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase health link on air i'm amber smith thanking you for listening